Father, again, we thank you that as we are moving through the book of Revelation, that the very first chapter in that book, you recorded very clearly that Christ loves us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood, that he has made us kings and priests to you, that indeed you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that you are the one that is writing history and you are directing all events towards your purposes, towards your end, that you are, you were, you are to come, you're the eternal one, and that you're almighty. Lord, with just those few things, we just take great, um, we have comfort in those. Lord, remind us of these truths as we look at chapter 6 today, because it is so horrendous that unless we knew that you were in complete control, it would, it would almost drive us out of our mind. And yet, because we know that you are in control, that you love us, that you care for us, that we have been redeemed, we have been purchased, we are your children, we are your sons and daughters, we have safety, we have peace, and we have security. And Lord, again, help us to study and understand these truths from that perspective, that we are yours, in Christ's name, amen. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, we begin the study of the tribulation. One of the things that we've been doing in men's prayer, uh, Charlie Diver's been leading it, um, and we seem to get into a lot of discussion. <laughs> it's been good. But one of the things we've been kicking around is pessimism and optimism. Pessimism and optimism. Is it okay to be a pessimist? Is it okay to be an optimist? What are we supposed to be? Well, before we even talk about that, let's, let me read the text, okay? Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And again, chapters 4 and 5 is, chapter 4 is uh, worship in heaven before, for God the Father. So God the Father is being worshipped. And then Jesus Christ in chapter 5 is being worshipped. And that's where the scroll is given from the Father to the Son. And uh, he is worshipped. He is worshipped as the Redeemer. And before he starts opening, this is the beginning of him opening. It says, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. This is chapter 6, verse 1. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bull, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature, uh, third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. 
and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a, the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades fouled with him. And power was given to him over a quarter or a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And so I ask you, should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Well, we looked up those words in men's prayer, at least the pessimism one. This is what pessimism says. It's a tendency to see the worst aspects of things. Let's see here. Um, things or believe that the worst will happen. Are you that type of person? Worst is going to happen. But this is the last part of this. A lack of hope or confidence in the future. Well, you can see that the worst things are going to happen because, by the way, the worst is yet to come on this earth. The earth is not going this way, it's going this way. Things are breaking down. Things are getting worse and worse, even when it comes to earthquakes and and the natural disasters and wars, and uh, men are not getting better, they're just getting better at killing each other, right? But, this is the problem with this, this uh, definition, a lack of hope. Wait a second here, we should be hopeful people, not those who lose hope, we should be hopeful. We should have confidence in the future. By the way, uh, as we studied many uh, weeks ago, actually months maybe, um, after chapter 3, I believe very clearly in Scripture through many uh, proofs that I gave you earlier, uh, that the church itself is taken out of the world. So the church age is chapters 2 and 3. The church is taken out. Chapter 4, we're in, uh, we see God in heaven being worshipped. Chapter 5, we see the Son being worshipped. Chapter 6, returns down to this earth and the tribulation starts. The church is not there. But no matter what time period a believer, Old Testament or New Testament, is in, we should never have hopelessness or confidence in what God is going to do in the future. So I would say this, we shouldn't be a pessimist. We might be able to say, yes, bad things are coming, but we should never get hopeless. By the way, optimism says this, it's a hopefulness and confidence in the future or the successful outcome of something. In other words, no, no, just don't worry, be happy. Well, no, actually, things are breaking apart. I don't particularly think you can be an optimist in this world either. I don't think you should be a pessimist or, or an optimist. I, I think you just have to see it this way, that God is big and our circumstances are small. Or, this is a, a better term, let's be Christ-centered. Right? Christ or, Christocentric, if you will. So I'm not pessimistic, although I do tend towards pessimism. Right, honey? Uh, pessimism or... <laughs> no, it was, it was, it's been a really good study in men's prayer because two weeks ago when we started this pessimism, optimism, and like, really, what should we be? Well, no, you can see that things are maybe spiraling down, but you can't get hopeless. On the other hand, if, you th if you're going to wear you know, don't, the rose-colored glasses and say, well, things are just going to get better, it's not. No, how about this? Christocentric. Christ is the center. And therefore, whatever he does is good, 
And whatever he does can, can be used for his purposes. So we're Christ-centric. We can see the bad, but we can also see the, what God is doing, and therefore we're hopeful in the middle, right? We're hopeful. We're hopeful in Christ. We're not hopeful in our circumstances. We're hopeful in Christ. Therefore, our circumstances are small, and God is big, and therefore we're Christocentric. That's how we should live. And as we enter and, and start studying this, because one of the questions in, as a pastor is, now how do I encourage the people with this? I mean, let's face it, verse 8, a quarter of the world's population is destroyed. That's 1.83 million people. Excuse me, 1.83 billion people. Again, the, world, the, the Bible does not uh, show that things are getting better and better. It actually shows that it's going to get deeper and deeper into chaos and confusion and sin as the end approaches. That spiritual deception will abound. That wars will increase. That crime will escalate. That economic upheavals will be prevalent. <coughs> And greater and greater natural disasters. All those things. But Jesus Christ is still sitting on the throne, right? He's still in control. He's still in control. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. So let's just look at a few things about the tribulation. We're going to get right in and hopefully get to the end of verse 8. First of all, the terms of the tri tribulation. The terms. In the Old Testament, it is described as birth pangs in the New Testament as well. Birth pangs, like in Isaiah 21, verse 3. Birth pangs. If you're a woman and have had a child, you understand what birth pangs are. They get greater and greater in intensity till the birth of the child. By the way, whenever we're using birth pangs, and I'm going to keep saying this, the birth is the return of Christ. That's the birth, okay? That's when the, the, the lights go out and then Christ comes and every eye will see Him. And through all that labor of tribulation, Christ is on the earth uh, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives and begins the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, But birth pangs. It's called the Day of the Lord. It's called the Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. I just want you to catch these terms. The Day of the Lord. It's, it's when His will is visible. I mean, His will is being accomplished but not always visible. I'm just going to read you one passage in Zephaniah 1 verse 14 uh, to 18. You don't have to turn there. You can just... But, in Zephaniah, this is referring to the Babylonian captivity. This is what's going to happen to Israel when they're taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. But it also has a future fulfillment. That's the present fulfillment, why Zephaniah wrote it. But it also has a future fulfillment in the tribulation. Now notice all the terms of the tribulation found in this passage. It's five verses. Notice this. Zephaniah 1.14 The great day of the Lord is near. And it is near and hastens quickly. By the way, that's what it's Babylonian captivity he's talking about. The siege on Jerusalem. But it has a future fulfillment in, in the tribulation. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, there the mighty men shall cry in anguish. Verse 15, that day is a day of wrath, which is vengeance. A day of trouble and distress. A day of devastation, which is destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. <clears throat> a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold 
shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. I mean, that's, those are some of the terms. Wrath, vengeance, desolation, devastation, trouble, distress. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. But notice it says the, all the land. Actually, when Jerusalem was besieged, it wasn't all. I mean, it was there and he took over, and, but not to this degree. This is still future. One of the other terms that's used is it's called the day of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation itself, the day of Jacob's trouble, which means Israel, Jacob, is not out of the, uh, doesn't get off the hook. Israel is also going to be dealt with. It's not just the ungodly nations. It's not just Gentile sinners. Also Israel. So those are some of the terms of the tribulation. There's even a lot more. But you get the flavor. It's a time of vengeance and wrath and desolation and destruction. Let's go on to the source. The source. Again, in Revelation 4, we saw God being worshipped in heaven. Chapter 5, Christ is worshipped in heaven. Again, God is worshipped as the Creator. Christ is the Redeemer. And He receives from God the Father a scroll. And you happen to have yeah, a scroll. Now, again, we don't see the scroll, but this is how some of the scrolls with seven seals, right? Is there seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Given by God to the Son. By the way, does God have a hand? No, Spirit. So you got to, okay? God is Spirit. And they who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth, right? But a scroll is given to the Son. Uh, some say that the, I'll say, the seals were like this and they're being broken. Others say that the way they used to do a, a will would be they would roll it, seal it, roll it, seal it, roll it, seal it, and the seals would be found within the folds of the, the scroll itself. So you would un, as you would unroll it, you would be breaking the seals. Um, either one, again, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, do you have another? Yeah. And, and they would be made out of wax. And the, is there another one? Yeah. And this one I like. Wait. Oh, it doesn't show the whole one. Does it? Yeah, I guess it is. <coughs> because it shows the, uh, th that's a horse. Can't see very good. Horse, four horses, and then the other three seals. Anyways, the point is, is the source is the source of the tribulation. In other words, who's causing it? Oh, the wickedness of man. Uh, no, you know, second law of thermodynamics. Uh, no, no, no. Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of the tribulation. He receives the scroll as he, un he breaks the seals a, a, a particular judgment on the earth occurs and it's all because of Jesus Christ. That's just what I want you to remember. The source of the tribulation is Jesus Christ. See, man, mankind continually thinks that, that, that it has its destiny in its hand, right? That is absolutely false. That is absolutely false. Our destiny is not in our hands, it's in Christ. Okay? Or say it this way, the destiny of this earth is not in our hands. It's in Christ. And when it's all said and done, this earth is just a shattered mess. And it wasn't because we didn't, you know, recycle plastic. It's because Christ judged this earth. 
Again, I'm not going to get environmental. And I, I know for some of you, really, oh, he's going to talk environmental. No, 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 no. This is why I bring it up, and I'll bring it up two or three times till the end, because if you put your energy trying to save this earth, it's a lost cause. Put your energy in what's going to last, and that's people's souls. That's the reason I'm only saying it. I'm not saying it to irritate. I'm saying it because you can lose a lot of energy going in the wrong direction that will have absolutely no effect on eternity. Which is really sad for your rewards. Because you got your eyes on what the world said versus what God clearly said in Revelation. It comes down to, do you believe the book? So, I mean, again, you know, throw your garbage. Don't throw it on the side of my road. Because then i got to go pick it up. You know, be a good steward. I'm okay with that, right? But don't make it sound like you're going to save something. Jesus Christ is coming back, and he's going to judge this world, and when it's all said and done, it's, it's going to be uninhabitable. So you know what he does? Great fire creates a new one. Okay, so, and we just have to think that way. Um, all things are for me. If you go to Colossians 1.16, 1, 1, it's just a good reminder that he is in control of everything, everything, and it's for him. Our lives could be so much simpler, so much more focused if we were Christ-centric, Christ-centered life, okay? I mean, again, he's the image of the invisible God, verse 15, firstborn of all, all creation. By him all things were created that are in heaven, okay, in heaven, and that are in earth, invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. By the way, that includes all good and all evil. That includes Satan. That includes the demons. That includes all the things that happen. For by him all things were created. Now again, I'm not saying he created sin. All I'm saying is, this last statement includes all things. Even dominions at this moment. They, it was created, Satan fell. That's his problem. Satan's fine. But it's still working for Christ's purposes. Sin works for Christ's purposes. He didn't create it, but it works for his purposes. Look at the last part of verse 16. All things were created through him, and, what's the last word? Oh, last two words. For him, Christ will receive the glory for all that he is going to accomplish even through the tribulation. I mean, I'm, I'm applying that to here, okay? It's for him. All this stuff through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. I mean, he even created Satan, knowing that Satan would deceive and then deceive a human race, and the human race would rebel, and they're going to have to come to the revelation. Yeah, yeah, revelation. The, the tribulation is going to have to happen because all the way back, God allowed, created, and his intention was and allowed okay, for his purposes. So the source of the tribulation, and you see this in Revelation 6.16. Again, we'll basically just turn back to there because we'll be there. I mean, look at this. It says, uh, verse 16 of the chapter we're in, and said to the mountains and the rocks, these are the ungodly men, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. <coughs> so again, it's the source of the tribulation is Christ. Though Christ will use his enemies, now catch this, Christ will use his enemies to judge his enemies. Well, no, that's happened throughout history, right? God even used an ungodly king, Nebuchadnezzar, in an ungodly nation, Babylon, to what? Judge his people. Sometimes we think that the winner is on God's side. That's not true. 
just God uses God uses his his you know his purposes are using just people godly ungodly and so in the tribulation you're going to even see ungodly judging those or being part of the judgments that happen on the godly because God uses people as instruments okay but the source of the tribulation is is again Christ how about the timing third timing the timing of the tribulation. When is it going to happen? Well, Daniel 9, and we were in Daniel a while back, but Daniel 9 talks about, uh, he gave us the timeline. He said there was going to be seven weeks, and then there was going to be 62 weeks. Remember, there was a 70 weeks of Daniel. I didn't get a chart up here, but boy, she is good. I didn't even tell her. Okay, 25 is, is going to be seven weeks and, and uh, 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. There's 70 weeks total. By the way, a week means seven. It just meant uh, a, a, um, a group of seven. So there'll be seven groups of seven and 62 week, uh, groups of seven. And we know from history, even history, that these are years. So there's going to be seven times seven is 49-year time frame. And then there's going to be another time frame of 62 times seven, which is what? Help me out, someone that's math and math. Anyways, it all comes up to 483 years. Now, this is why it's important. On the very day, Jesus Christ... Okay, it started with the building of... Uh, the, the 70... Let me, let me back this right up. The, the start of the clock of the 70 weeks of Daniel began of the decree to rebuild the wall. And if you, if you calculate out 483 years, that's... 69 weeks, that's 69 weeks times 7 years, that's 483 years. What was that? I forget how many, 100,000 uh, 100, days that is, 188 something. Anyway, bottom line is this. On a calendar of 360 days, right, 12 months, 30 days, that's a Jewish calendar, 360, you take out uh, 483 years, Starting the clock at the time that the decree went out to rebuild the wall, the day Jesus Christ walked into Jerusalem was the end of that time frame. Like, click. Except the clock didn't keep running. It stopped. Okay? So now, 483... Am I saying this right? I don't have it written. Yeah. 483 years, because the total is 490, is done. There's seven years to go. Did I say that correct? I want to make sure you get this. I mean, this is one of the most phenomenal pieces of prophecy. That it started on the day of the decree, and for 483 years, it continued until the very day Jesus walked in for the final time in Jerusalem. Except the thing that we don't understand out of Daniel was, I mean, that the clock would stop and it would remain stopped. And there's only the seven final year period called um, the, the Great tri the Tribulation. Seven final years left of Daniel's 70 years. So 69 of the s s seven year periods of time has been done. In fact, it says it right here. Let's go. So in verse 26, it says seven years, 62. And then after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. What does that mean? What do you mean Messiah will be cut off? He's going to die. Okay, Daniel didn't understand all the particulars. 
He comes into Jerusalem, what happens? Within the week, what happens? Dead, right? Comes in on a Monday, he dies on a Friday. He dies within four, four or five days, right? So, now wait a second. Okay, uh, that's 483 years, but not for himself. He didn't die for himself. He didn't die for his sins, right? By the way, Jesus Christ did not die for his sins. He died for our sins. Have you ever received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever realized, yes, he didn't die for his sins. He died for my sins, not for himself, as Daniel says. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now, right there, there's a split. There's a long time frame between the very, where that colon is, the semicolon is, right? See, the clock stopped, he dies. What, what Daniel didn't tell and he didn't know was the fact that there was going to be this time frame, called, what we call the church age. And it's now gone on for 2,000 years, 2,000 plus years. Because the second term of the prince and the people of the prince who is to come, see, that's not the one that came, that's Messiah. The people of the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. He'll destroy the city, that's Antichrist. But look at this, verse 27. Now, you get the picture? Clock starts, 69 weeks. 69 weeks equals a 483 years. We went into the great detail. 483 years at the very day that that, that ended, the very day, clicks he comes into Jerusalem, he's crucified, he's cut off. But there's this time frame, church age. Question is, when does the final week end? When does that final tribulation? Because it says, look at this, look at what it says in verse 27. Do you have that up there, hon? Good. Oh, wow, she is good. Then, then he shall confirm a covenant with many, that's the Jews, for one week. What do you mean, one week? One group of seven, that's seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice. What do you mean? At the end of the, se- I mean, the middle of the seven, seven, that's three and a half. At the three and a half year point, he's going to put an end to the sacrifices. Apparently, there's going to be a tribulation temple. And sacrifices are happening. See, there was a peace time. And during that peace time, the Jews apparently are able to sacrifice. But in the middle of that seven year period, three and a half year middle mark, he, he puts an end to it. And the Antichrist shows his true colors. Stops the sacrifice. Look at this. On the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. He's the one that makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So then <coughs> the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. And we're going to have some charts and stuff in future weeks. It's just all I really wanted to establish right here is the timing. Now this is the timing. Go back to verse 27, the first part of it then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Okay, so when's the timing? The timing of the tribulation is not the rapture of the church. The timing of the tribulation starts with the, with the when, well, just he says it right here, confirm a covenant with the many for a week. When he confirms that covenant. So the reality is this. The, the church might be raptured, and there might be a few weeks or a month or something like that in between the rapture and the actual signing of the covenant. And what the covenant is going to do is provide peace for the Jewish nation. Finally, there will be peace in the Middle East. Okay? And, he, and the protector of Israel at that point will be the Antichrist. That's what Daniel's talking about. He's the one that runs desolate. You find him in, a, you know... Again, we went through that. We'll go through that again when we get to chapter, uh, well, some of the future chapters, uh, chapter 13 in particular. Um, Okay, so that's the timing. The timing of the tribulation happens. Rapture happens. happens. Most likely there's going to be, well, let's face it. 
If millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians exit this earth, is there going to be chaos that starts out? Are they going to need somebody to bring peace to the chaos? I mean, sure, the unsaved people will be like this, good riddance to them, but then they realize that they're sitting in a plane that had a Christian pilot. <laughs> you know? I mean, things are going to be chaotic. The start is this, Antichrist signs the covenant. Uh, Jimmy DeYoung, when he was here, thought that the covenant has already been uh, produced, but had never been agreed to. Okay, But who knows? We don't know. That's just speculation. So, let's go to the overview. Number four, overview of the tribulation. Now again, we've got the terms. We know who's in control. It's not Antichrist. It's Jesus Christ. Okay? But we do know even the when, when he signs the covenant, when the Antichrist signs the covenant. How about the overview? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see. Okay, so, so now we have a scroll, and I showed you that earlier. That it was given by the Father to the Son. Again, the scroll, this is important, the scroll is the title deed to the earth. That's what it represents. It's the title deed to the earth, which God the Father would give to Christ. Which means this, if you own the title deed, if you have the title deed, that means you're the owner. So who's the owner of this earth? It's not humans. It's not Satan. It's Christ. He created it. He can do with it as he pleases. This is the title deed. So this scroll does not, re does not record the descriptive detail of what... And this is not what it is. It does not uh, record the descriptive detail of what Christ will inherit. It's, this scroll is not what he's going to inherit. He already owns it. In fact, in the end, why would he want even why would you even want to describe what is he's going to inherit? He's going to destroy it at the end. <laughs> Have you ever had an inheritance that got like, you know, blown up in the end? No, you know. So I mean, no, no. What this scroll does, now this is very important. This scroll shows rather how he will regain his rightful inheritance. See, this scroll, as he's opening up, what is he doing? He is judging this earth. What happens at the final judgment? The earth is completely destroyed. What happens at the... He comes back. And he sets himself up as the, the king on David's throne, and he becomes the king of the millennial reign. Okay? So this is not showing, telling what his inheritance is, but how he will regain his rightful inheritance by being the king over this world. Okay? and how he's going to also redeem the world from the usurper Satan, sin, ungodliness, take care of all the wickedness, all the, all the goats. Which tells us this, okay? What is written is in this, in this final book is the end of human history. I mean, we are going to be studying about the end of human history. Which for you could be very pessimistic, or it could be, wow, God started it, the end from the beginning. He knows it. And we're just moving towards the very end. And, and He has already written human history. This is what it should do for Christians. You know what? If that's the case, then Lord, help me to be Christ-centered. Help me accomplish Your purposes. Because I already know that everything that I do on this earth, if it's just material and it has nothing to do with You, is going to be destroyed. Right? See, that's really good. You know it's a really great phenomenal thought? You're going to be forgotten. You know, we have these buildings up at up up the road here, and you know, some guy's name—I don't know who the guy is. 
I was talking to my wife earlier, uh, a couple days, or two, two days ago, one day ago. Anyways, her father, no, excuse me, her grandfather was a Methodist minister and had a number of boys and a girl, which is my mother-in-law. They, many of them went into ministry. I mean, it's amazing. This guy, and then these guys, you know, then ministers, and many of their children are ministers, and now I think it's the fourth generation. Some of them are going into ministry. But when it comes, what's his name again? <laughs> ben. <laughs> See, you're going to be forgotten. No, really. What we were talking about is like, I wonder what he liked. Where did he live? How big was his church? What type of ministry did he, you know, we're talking, you're, you're going to be forgotten. Now, except by the one that is omniscient. See, except by, when it really comes, I don't expect to have my child, if Amber and the Lord doesn't come back, and she then is going to have a, a you know, perhaps, perhaps, Lord willing, get, you know, uh, get married. By the way, if any of you want to date her, you can see me later. <laughs> I should not have said that. I will, I will pay, I will pay dearly for that later on. But you know how it's, you know, it's, it was like that ice cream bar that was right there and I just had to grab it, you know. The point is this. What is the point? Oh, I know what the point is. The point is this. Lord willing, I mean, if the Lord doesn't come back and say she gets married two or three kids and then 20 years, and after about fourth, third, fourth generation, they're not going to know who Grandpa Prince was. I might have left a, a legacy in the sense, of hopefully, of godliness and maybe pointing them in the right direction, but as far, as far as knowing pieces of my life, probably not. You know, that's all it was. And you just <laughs> hold it. <laughs> I was wrong, so don't even see me later. Okay, let me just get back on script. <laughs> See, Christ ownership is a game changer. Just, just remember that. I use that word downstairs for the ABF, but I'll use it up here as well. Christ ownership of this earth, that, it's, that this earth, that God has a predetermined, unalterable, eternal plan for this earth. It's predetermined, it's foreordained. History has already been determined. It's already been written. It's already being... It was presented and being accomplished. That is a game changer because it just it puts our our priorities in the proper place if we say we're going to live for Christ. Okay, it gets rid of a lot of barnacles in our life. Now, let's go from what the scroll and the and, and, you know what it is to the specific seals. The seal, each seal represents a specific judgment. Even the first one, which is peace. Because when you live in peace, many times that, that puts you at rest for a greater judgment. But each one of these are, because peace sometimes deludes you. So even that is a judgment on this earth. But there's seven specific judgments. Now, I, I want you to catch this, that the first four, which we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are most likely taking place in the first three and a half years. Chapter 5, which are the witnesses, the martyred witnesses, probably, and I'm going to use the word probably, but I think I could show you in, in future weeks, will be the, will go from the first three and a half years into, and I'll use this as the three and a half year mark, the first three and a half years to the second three and a half years. 
And then seal number six and seven are the last part of the three and a half year tribulation. Okay? The great tribulation. This is the great tribulation. This is the beginning of the tribulation. This is the birth pangs. This is having the baby. In fact, if you want to put it like this, seven years, three and a half years, the first four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals, the, 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 the witnesses that die, the, the martyrs that die, chapter five, or uh, seal five, six and seven, Christ comes back. Okay. That's just a very... And this is what's interesting. When he gave the Olivet Discourse, remember, just before he died, he came into the uh, Jerusalem and the clock stopped on Monday. On Wednesday, he gave the Olivet Discourse. It was just two days later. It was his final sermon. It was his longest sermon to any question that ever was asked him. And in that final sermon, which is Wednesday... Thursday is going to be the, uh, uh, the upper room, and then Friday he dies. So, I mean, we're talking, he gives all this information to them uh, two days before his death. The Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, Mark 13 follow exactly this. He talks about false prophets. He talks about, which is peace. Then he talks about war. He talks about famine. He, I mean, he literally gave in, in a very short summary in Matthew 24 and those other passages this breakdown. Now, in Revelation 6, we get a little bit more. Okay, uh, We get more specific. But again, leading up to this is birth pangs. Start of the tribulation, birth pangs. Then in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, the last two seals... It's when you as a woman were within 20 minutes of having the baby. Right? I mean, now you're really pain. Real pain, right? And I know you would say it like this, John, and you have no idea, so don't try to talk to me about it. <laughs> but, before the start of the tribulation, there's going to be what we call Braxton Hick pain. Right, Braxton Hicks. It was some guy back in the 1800s that discovered it. Like, it, like a man discovered it. Like, why wouldn't a woman discover this? Okay. <laughs> and a, Braxton Hicks was in the second and third. I guess Braxton Hicks. And again, I'm not a woman. I'm not. Hey, listen. I say something wrong. See, my wife. I'm just. She didn't tell me. I looked this up on the web. But apparently, this happens in the second and third trimester. False. Now they say false labor pains. But some people say, well, they're not false or painful. But yeah, but they're not. What it is is this. It's not the true labor where it's going to start and not stop until the baby's born. It's lead up to. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is, right now we're in the Braxton Hicks phase of it. Oh, this world is painful. And you see wars and rumors of wars. You see famine and pestilence. You see all this stuff. But, we, but it's not leading, it's, it's going towards, but it's not going to be where it kicks off, he signs the covenant, it starts, and, and it's not going to end until the baby's born, which is Christ coming back. Do you see what I'm saying? So now we're in it, and, and many of these Braxton Hick pains are very similar to what you see in the tribulation, except for the intensity, right? I mean, yeah, there's death and destruction, there's wars and famines, there's earthquakes, but not like you're going to see in the tribulation. Okay, so birth pangs would be the actual birth. 
And I say the last part because the last part is very short. In fact, so much destruction, so much damage, if it wasn't for the fact that it was short, all, all living creatures would die. All people, all everything would die. But he cut short that time. So that's how you have to look at it. First four, fifth seal, sixth, seventh, Christ comes back. All right, let's look at the specifics. First seal. <coughs> and again, verse 4, these are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now he receives the scroll, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 1, he broke, the New American says, or he opened the first seal. He broke it. He, he opened it. He's the one in control. He opens. And what happens? A white horse. He who sat on it with a bow and a crown was given him. Was given him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, horses in Scripture were used of triumph, majesty, power, conquest. Okay, I think that's pretty well established. So this one has power, conquest. That's what these four horsemen are. The question is, who is it sitting on it? Who is sitting on the horse? Okay, because it says, behold, the white horse. And he who sat on it. Now, actually, I, I'm just going to give you three. There's actually four interpretations, but I don't even go to the fourth. The, the three are this. One says, well, this is the proclamation of the gospel. See, it's a white horse. has a bow. He is conquering. And what that means is this. The gospel, first century, is going to continue to increase and increase and have power and, and actually conquer man. And what you're seeing is that the gospel itself is going to conquer, conquer, and, and actually there's, a, there's a, uh, a view out there called post-millennialism that says this. From the time of the you know, first century, the gospel is going to just increase in strength and the gospel itself will usher in the, the king, which is Christ, and he's, he's going to come back. Except their view is this. The millennium is happening now and Christ will come back at the end of the millennium. That's why it's called post-millennialism. You, you know what crushed that theory? World War I. Totally crushed it. After World War I, no, almost no one admitted at least to being a post-millennial because they finally saw the ultimate horror of what man could do. That though the gospel is absolutely powerful, it wasn't changing the earth like they thought it was. I'm going to say that's not the right one. And then you had World War II and wars since then that have been just horrific. Now some will say it's Christ, but... And it makes sense why some would say it's Christ. I talked to a pastor a number of years ago, and that was his view. I'm millennial. Many of them will say that this is Christ. It's a white horse. White means purity. Him who sat on it had a bow. But let me throw out a few things. It says in uh, Revelation 19 that Christ comes back and with crowns, plural, and they're called diadem, diademas. This is a stephanos. It's, this is like the crown that they got, the laurel wreath, when they ran a track meet back in the Olympian Games. Okay? It wasn't the diadem. And this, this guy only has one. It says of Christ that he had many. Well, wait a second here. Not only that, but it, it says in Revelation 19, he comes back with a sword. This says he has a bow, but this has a bow with no arrows. And again... It's clear with Revelation, if it's just chronological, he comes back at the end, not at the beginning. I would, I, I would say this is not Christ. In fact, I'm absolutely sure it's not Christ. So who is it? 
Well, MacArthur actually has an interesting thought. He says, since the other three writers represent not individual persons, but in impersonal forces, which is war, famine, death, it is best to view, view the first one as a force as well. So in other words, don't view this like that. Okay, I put that up there to tell you not to think of it like that. I mean, he's, he's seeing the vision of four horses. He's seeing the vision of the four on it. But these are forces. I mean, it's not going to be like one, one person war is going to kill a quarter of the world's population. They're forces. The first force is peace, then war, then famine, then death. Okay? But, and I'm going to add a big but, but it is, it is the Antichrist. Antichrist is the main character in the first part of the, the, well, actually the whole tribulation, but the first part that does bring peace. Okay? So, even though I don't believe, I, I think MacArthur makes a good point here. He, all right, they're a force, but who, who is the one that has, who is the one that's being uh, energized is the Antichrist. Okay? And again, we see a lot of him in Daniel. Uh, particularly Antichrist will deceive and lure Israel, it, lure Israel into making a covenant with them for seven years. But again, he confirms the covenant at the three and a half year point. He breaks the covenant. He becomes their protector in the first half. Antichrist becomes their destroyer in the second half. And it's very abrupt. He puts an end to the sacrifice. So he presents himself as the Prince of Peace here but he presents himself as the destroyer here, and the true Prince of Peace comes back, that's Christ, at the end of the seven years. So this is a deceptive peace, and you say, has there ever been a time in history when there was a deceptive peace? The people were at peace, and they said, oh, peace in our lifetime. And again, the, the most famous is back in 1938. Again, it seemed incredible that a world that, that was at a was at the brink of final disaster, could be so, so totally deceived. We're talking about Germany, right? And England, and the whole world. I mean, how could, a, how could a nation, and how could a world that was on the brink of disaster, war, be so deceived? But that is exactly what happened on a smaller scale before the outbreak of the most devastating war to date, World War II. Let me just read it, because I, I think this is worth remembering. Adolf Hitler spelled out in details his plan for conquest in his book, Mein Kampf, mein Kampf published more than a decade before World War II. Yet incredibly, the Western Allies, particularly Britain and France, persisted in believing Hitler's false claim to be a man of peace. They stood idly by as he reoccupied the Rhineland, thus abrogating the Versailles Treaty, then annexed Austria, the Sutherland, and also Czechoslovakia. Desperate to appease Hitler and to avoid war, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with Nazi dictator at, the, at Munich in 1938. Now, 19, wait, that's only a year before Hitler does all this. Upon his return to England, Chamberlain triumphantly waved a piece of paper containing the worthless pledge of peace from Hitler. I, I, I actually have watched that scene many, many times. I, you know, just it's like what a fool! What he claimed guaranteed peace with honor, peace for our lifetime. When Winston Churchill, one of the few, he was one of the few that never uh, took Hitler uh, seriously in that sense, 
Rose in the House of Commons declared that England had suffered a total unmitigated defeat. He was shouted down by angry members of Parliament. The deception was nearly universal. Almost everyone misread Hitler's intentions. Only after he invaded Poland in September 1939 did the Allies finally acknowledge the truth. By then it was too late to avoid the catastrophe of the Second World War. See, that's, how, that's what I mean by um, the judgment. This first seal was a seal of deceptive peace. See, that's a false peace. And because it's a false peace, Israel is lulled into accepting what uh, Antichrist is going to do, which sets them up for even greater disaster. That's why it's a judgment. If a nation is at peace and thinks there's peace in our lifetime, when the enemy is at the door, that's going to only bring us down farther, right? And you see that today in our own nation. Um, but again, let's stick to Revelation, Okay. Revelation, the first seal is peace. It's a false peace. But notice the rider. The rider had a bow but no arrows. That means this is a bloodless victory. In other words, he didn't have to use arrows. It was done through intrigue. It was, it was done through cunning and deception, through strong delusion. That's how he was able to conquer Israel. They signed the peace treaty. Okay? An arrow, excuse me, a bow but no arrows. He won by agreement, not conquest. Now, I mean, the word conquest is here, right? He went out to conquer and to con uh, conquering and to conquer, but the conquering was bloodless. It was through agreement. It was through a false peace, a through false peace of prosperity. Excuse me, peace and prosperity. Okay, so that's the first judgment, which doesn't sound real harsh until you think of. The illustration of World War II. Now you can say, oh, I could see how it could, yeah, it could set you up for total disaster. How about number two? War. When he opened the second seal. Who's opening it up? Christ. I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, another horse. Fiery red. Just as Hitler's false peace came to a sudden end, so Antichrist will. See, another horse. Now all of a sudden, somewhere in this first little bit of time, it goes from peace. Now there's war. Not just against Israel, but war breaks out around the world. This is worldwide, remember. Fiery red depicts uh, war, depicts blood. Look at verse second part of verse 4. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Why? Because there was peace. There was a false peace. See, you know in second part of verse 4, oh, there was a false peace. Now peace is taken from the earth. And people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. It's all under God's sovereignty. But whose wrath is being played out? Antichrist? Uh-uh. God's. Okay, this is God's. Happening in the first half of the tribulation. The word sword is not for the long broad sword. It's for the, the little sword they had and it was for an assassin. It was used of an assassin sword. Which, see, it, it's, it, it makes sense because an assassin sword, you, a broad sword, you see it coming. An assassin's sword is quick, lethal, and then he can go on and destroy. So the idea is quick. It's, um, it, they didn't see it coming, okay? So again, that's the sword. Uh, again, Daniel 8.24, won't turn there, tells us that Antichrist will be skillful at war. He's not only a peacemaker, he's a warrior. The Antichrist. But what are we saying? 
Jesus is the one in control. Jesus is the one that's breaking the second seal. But he uses Antichrist to judge the earth. God uses the ungodly to judge the ungodly. Okay? God uses the ungodly to judge the ungodly. All right, so we have peace, false peace. Now we have war. Now let's see here. Now we have famine. That's a natural result, isn't it? War, famine, people are killed, crops are disrupted. Uh, getting the crops to the store is disrupted. We have, and when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature. And he looked, come and see, same scenario. So I looked and behold, a black horse. Black was associated with famine in Luke or in Lamentations 5. Again, famine is a logical consequence of worldwide war. Food supplies are destroyed, producers and distributors are disrupted and killed, and food cannot get to the stores. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 7. So, see, Jesus in the Alba Discourse goes through the same process. He shows what's going to happen. And now we get a bigger glimpse. But, but look at verse 6, uh, or the last part of verse 5. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. That's rationing. You know. But, but, but notice how expensive food is. Verse 6, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat, or a quart of wheat, a quart of wheat would be enough for one person to have enough food for one day. But that quart of wheat took a denarius, which was one day's wage. One day's wage for one person to eat. But notice what else. And then it says, in three quarts of barley, barley was less nutritious. They used to use it for feeding livestock. Uh, three quarts could feed a family, but it was less nutritious. There again, still, same thing, one denarius. These are famine conditions. Took a whole day to, to produce enough food. If you want to have a nutritious meal for just you, or if you're going to feed it to your family, you had three kids and your wife, took a whole day and it wasn't even nutritious. It's famine conditions. Boy, pessimism, optimism, no, no. Christ-centered. Lord, just help us to keep, help us to be hopeful. Thankfully, I believe we're out of here with the, with the rapture, but thankfully, Lord, even those who have to endure this, that get saved during this time, you know, it's not about eating here, it's about eternity and they're secure in you. And then finally, the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living, four living creatures come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Pale is the word chloros. We get the word chloroform, chlorine, chlorophyll. <laughs> well, chlorophyll, green, it refers to a sickly, pale, yellow-green color. I was going to show you a, a corpse, but I thought that's too gross. But, pale. And the color of this pale green pastiness of death. Look at this, verse 8. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. He's the grim reaper. And Hades, he's the grave digger. Grim reaper, grave digger. Well, Death slays the body. Hades swallows up the soul. So Death kills and Hades comes right along scooping them up. Followed him. These are grisly, gruesome terms. Look at the amount. Power was given to them. Death and Hades. That's why I say it's not a person, it's a power, but death, death and Hades are given to them by God again over a fourth of the earth. I don't think he's saying just a fourth of the earth. He's saying a fourth of the earth dies. 
Not like it just hits a quarter of the world. It's a, it's a quarter of the world population dies. You say, well, how many are in the population right now? Uh, around 7.4 billion people on this earth right now. 7.4 billion. Now, if a quarter of that is one, it's 1.825 billion. 1.8 billion people die in this fourth, this whole process of the first part of the tribulation. 1.8 billion. So I, I got to thinking, I wonder how many people are in South and North America. North and South America. And I looked it up. And it's, America has about 321 million, thereabouts. Mexico, 121. South America, 415. Canada, 36. Add them up, and it's 893 million. Billion. Excuse me, million. All right. 893 million. 800, shy of a billion. Which only means this. If every person was wiped out from Canada all the way to the tip of South America, that's only half of what's going to be wiped out. There's still... 800 and some million that have to be killed just in that first, that, that one sealed judgment. I mean, that's just a horrendous amount of people. Can you imagine how catastrophic? And then finally, to kill. Now notice how you kill. With sword, that's war. Hunger, that's famine. Death, that's... Actually, the word can be translated pestilence or disease and by the beasts of the earth. So... How, how do they die? War, famine, pestilence, disease, and the beasts of the earth. Disease has killed far more people than war ever has. In fact, if you want to go there, just let me end with this. We'll pick it up here next time. I mean, you think about the diseases. Can you go to those pictures? I mean, Spanish flu... In 1918, killed many more than World War II itself did. Uh, I believe it was like 50. Let me see here. I wrote it down. Spanish flu killed 50 million people in 1918. Smallpox killed between three and 500 million. I mean, and it's a very painful death. And the Black Death. Killed 75, they don't know because they didn't keep record back in the 1300s, but between 75 and 200 million people. It, it literally decimated, I think they said, between 30 and 60% of Europe's population. Uh, the Black Death came from the Silk Road from the east, and the Silk Road would be, you know, the, the, um, to get products from the east to Europe. And and then they, many of these products would go on ships and the disease was there and it started in Sicily and some of those places and then went right up through Europe. And in those 15 or 20 years, whatever it was, um, between 30 and 50% of Europe's population was decimated. You can see, again, God uses many ways. And, but let me just end with this. What were those beasts? The beasts. Beasts of the earth. I mean, was it a lion? Was it a rhinoceros? I didn't realize hippos were, are really dangerous too. Are a bunch of hippos running around? I would, I would say this. How about this? How about the wild beast might be the rats? Do you know that, that the rat is the most dangerous animal on this planet? John Phillips writes this. The beasts are closely linked with pestilence 
and might be a clue, the, the most destructive creature on earth, so far as mankind is concerned, is not the lion or the bear, but the rat. The rat is clever, adaptable, destructive. If 95% of the rat population is exterminated in a given area, the rat population will replace itself in one year. It has killed more people than all the wars in history, and it makes its home wherever man is found. Rats carry as many as 35 different diseases. Their fleas called the bubonic plague, which is a black death, which killed a third of the population of Europe, between 30 and 60% of the Europe population in the 14th century. Their fleas also call, carry typhus, which in four, in four centuries has killed an estimated 200 million people. Beasts in this passage are linked not only with pestilence, but with famine. Rats menace human food supplies, which they both devour and contaminate, especially in the more underdeveloped countries that can least afford to suffer loss. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the beast. See, I don't want you thinking beasts necessarily are lions. Might be the rats. But rats carry disease, and disease kills millions upon millions and upon millions. And what is the point? If you're in Christ, you're safe and secure. Right? If you're in Christ, you're safe and secure. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't want to be pessimistic in the sense of hopeless, and I don't want to say it's optimism that just says, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, and um, you know, don't worry, be happy. No, just be Christ-centered. Lord, I just want to live for you. And everything's under your control. And I just want to, just as long as I'm one of your children, and walking with you so I can be rewarded, then everything is in your hands, right? Amen? So we can study a book like Revelation and say, no, Antichrist is not in control. Satan is not in control. Our Lord is in control. Let's stand as we worship him. Being Christ-centric. Christ -centric. It says this. Again, because we don't want to be pessimistic. We don't want to be optimistic. We want to be focused on him. But what does it look like? God's man, or God's woman, focused on God's purposes, i.e., Christ's likeness, glorify him. Depending on God's power is unbreakable. God's man focused on God's purposes, depending on God's power is unbreakable. See, pessimist is breakable because he's going to get hopeless. And an optimist is going to be breakable. Why? Because he's going to find out he had rose-colored glasses on. But if you're Christ-centered and you're God's man focused on God's purposes, depending on God's power to live this life, you'll become unbreakable. Why? Because your, your power comes from God. And it's for his purposes and his glory. So may that be your focus. And may this be the focus even as we study the tribulation and even as you go through uh, the trials of your life. May your eyes be on him. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for these words found in Scripture that tell us that history has already been written and history is moving to a, an appointed conclusion. Uh, may we have confidence, may we have peace, may we find security in your word and in your person. Uh, give us strength, help us to depend on your strength so we can accomplish your objectives in our life in this world. In Christ's name, amen.